As we get started, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn them to um, Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 is where we'll be uh, reading from today. And since we're talking about the church's uh, mission, uh, we're moving on to the word equip, and specifically equipping believers. And I would like to start off uh, by talking a bit about the army. It is Veterans Day, so if you were a veteran, you, you, went, you served in the Navy, right? Who, who else? Who else here in here has served in the? You were in the Marines. Okay, in the army. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you guys for your service. We we do appreciate it. Um, without your service, we are <laughs> we are worse off for it. If we were not serving in the armed forces, thanks guys. We do appreciate it. So it's Veterans Day. Make sure you thank a veteran. It's in the Commonwealth. It is Remembrance Day. So if you ever see people in like England wearing those poppies or in Canada wearing the poppies, that's for Remembrance Day. And uh, I was going to start off, as I thought about an illustration for this sermon, I was going to start off talking about World of Warcraft because there was a very easy parallel I could make there. But as I thought about it and started write, I wrote about half a page on my notes and then I realized I'm going to lose people if I keep talking about this. Like it's just so... Like, there will be three people who get it, and everybody else will go, I don't understand this. So the better analogy for this sermon is the army. Because everyone knows the army. I've actually had quite a few of my friends from high school join the army. And one of them is even a major now. Uh, that's my friend Luke, who I've mentioned before. He's a major, so his, it's Major Sprinkle, which sounds like what they would call it on the news. They'd be like, well, we're going to have some Major Sprinkles today. And I tease him about that, because he used to be a captain, which was cooler. Uh... But as a guy I played football with in high school, he was a major in the Army. So, uh, My grandpa also served in the Army during World War II. He had told us only a handful of stories growing up. I know he's got a ton of stories, but he only told us a few. And he mentions how in World War II, how after he, he signed up and joined the Army, uh, he was transitioning from a civilian to a, uh, being a soldier. And he went on a march. It was like his second day. And he went on, it was all with these new recruits. They were doing uh, basic training. And they were mar going for a march after the rain. And the drill sergeant uh, was marching them around and marched them towards this puddle. And the drill sergeant marched up to it and marched through it. My grandpa got up to it. And he saw this puddle on the ground. And he just kind of jumped over it and kept going. And the drill sergeant see, turns around and sees these guys jumping over this puddle. He says, everybody stop. So he stopped. And they're like, he uses more colorful language than I do, uh, the drill sergeant does. But he's like, what are you doing? Why did you jump over that puddle? You, whatever. <laughs> and my grandpa said in his head, he goes, well, of course I'm going to jump over the puddle. I got this nice uniform on. I want to keep it nice. You know, so the drill sergeant says, you don't break cadence. The left, right, left. He said, you don't break cadence. You march through whatever's on the ground. Don't, <laughs> don't break formation. So he turned, he said, everybody about face, turned around, marched him through the puddle. And then turned him around and marched him through the puddle again. And then turned him around and marched him through the puddle a third time. It was like, you don't break marching, for, you keep going. 
And so he marched them through it so many times to teach them a lesson that they would remember. You don't break cadence. You don't break formation. You keep going. It's a puddle. Too bad. You march through the puddle. And the drill sergeant's goal was to start getting these civilians to think like soldiers. And that process is called basic training. Boot camp. Also, all army soldiers go through it. It's learning how to do all the things a soldier needs to do and learning how to think and to behave like a soldier. It's physical and mental preparation for combat. You learn how to shoot a rifle, learn how to shoot a handgun, learn other combat skills, you learn how to march, to march in double time, about face and all that stuff that I don't know because I've never been in the army. You learn how to take orders. Say, yes, sir, yes, sir, to everything. And it's important for the soldiers to function in a certain way. Not only for their safety, but for their effectiveness. Because think about the opposite. We, I don't like the idea of going through basic training because it's like somebody literally can tell you anything to do and you have to do it right away. But there is some merit to that. There is some importance to that. Because can you imagine an army of new recruits sent out with no combat training? You know, here's a gun. They're the bad guys. Go get them. In that kind of army training, you know, you send them into combat, guys would be shooting each other accidentally. They'd be running into combat, getting killed immediately. Some would run away not knowing or not caring how to fight as a team. It would just be the worst army ever. Soldier preparation is essential so that the army functions properly. And without it, the soldiers are actually in grave danger. They may have been commissioned to fight and recruited to fight. And they may even be willing to fight and want to say, yes, I want to fight for my country. I want to protect. I want to serve. But if they are not trained, they're with no training, no equipment, they'd be done for. But if they are properly trained and equipped, they are a formidable force. They could capture any positions and defeat larger forces. It's the training and the preparation that is essential for them to succeed. It's proper preparation, getting equipped to fight, that is essential for the success of the army. And hopefully you can see the parallels even before I start talking. Hopefully as I've said this, you're going, I know where he's going with this. Because as Christians, we are like soldiers in an army. Second Timothy, bless you, 2, 3 to 4. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Paul is painting the picture that we are soldiers in God's army. I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never fly over the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. At our conversion, we are immediately put into God's army. We are enlisted, and we're actually pulled up to active duty right away. And the sad thing is, many were not told that they're in the army now. They are engaged in battle against the enemy, and they don't know it. Because there's a war going on until Jesus comes back. And Christians are on the front lines of the fighting. And because many Christians were not told that they are in a battle, they are not prepared for the battle. A lot of times people will preach the gospel, 
and say, oh, Jesus is great. You need to believe in Jesus. You go to heaven and they say, oh, yeah, sure, I'll take that. I'll take going to heaven. That sounds pretty great. And they think life is easy peasy, lemon squeezy. They were never told they'll need to fight when difficult times come at them. And they start whining. I can't tell you how many Christians, baby Christians, new believers, that I hear whining and complaining. Why is this happening to me? Where is God? Why is life becoming so difficult ever since I became a Christian? You ever heard Christians say that? You ever thought that yourself? Now that I'm a Christian, why is this so difficult? Well, it's because you changed sides. You went from the bad guy side to the good guy side. And all the bad guys are upset at you now. So they're picking on you. I've heard people say, isn't God good? Why would God let this happen to me? And God's going, you're in a war now, son. Start fighting. And these Christians have churches that didn't equip them for service and serving in God's army, which is sad because that's like 100% of what church leadership is expected to do. It's literally the core part of the work that the church should be doing which is why we have it in our mission statement. We want to be a church that seeks the unreached, equips believers, and sends the called. It's step two in the process of making disciples here. First, we are to seek the unreached. We get that net out, cast that net, bring in whoever we can. Find people who don't know Jesus and introduce them to him. This is preaching the gospel, evangelistic work. We want to help people who don't know Jesus to find him. But after we find them and bring them in, we don't just say, well, keep coming to church and sit here for an hour and a half on Sunday and you're good. Maybe pray. Maybe read your Bible. That's not enough. The church is not doing enough to prepare Christians for the spiritual war that is going on around them. And I like the language here where it says equipped believers because it's very, very biblical. It's stolen right from the Bible. If you're going to plagiarize anything in church work, plagiarize the Bible. God's not going to sue you. Ephesians 4, verse 12, details what the church should do. Jesus gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, or shepherds, and teachers. Why did he give them to the church? For funsies? No, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. God gave the church these roles so the church could be equipped. Not to do the work, not to evangelize, not to heal, not to give prophetic words, but to teach the church how to do those things. This is a fundamental shift. I'm going off my notes here. This is a fundamental shift we have to make as a church. Realistically, I'm not the pastor of the church. I'm technically the leader. You guys are all the pastors of the church who get to do the work. It's your responsibility to evangelize your friends. It's your responsibility to pray for healing for them. It's your responsibility to introduce them to the Bible and explain their dreams to them when they have them. Not mine. It's my responsibility to teach you how to do that. So, until I do that, <laughs> I'm being deficient in my role. And God wants us, as leaders, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. And the Greek word here for equip is the uh, Greek word katartismos, which literally means to bring into a condition of fitness and proper function. 
to get it to work in the right way. So it's not just equipping you. Like if I get call Connor up here, hey, I'm going to equip you for fighting. I give him a helmet, I give him some body armor, give him a sword and a shield, and I say, okay, you're equipped. And Connor's like, well, yes, thanks, but, but I don't know how to use them. It's not just giving them the pieces of equipment that they need. It's teaching them how to use them properly. Because swords are dangerous. If I give Connor a sword and I say, hey, get to fighting, he can cut himself. He can cut his friends. He needs to use it properly to fight the enemy. And helmets are helpful, but not if you wear them on your feet. And it's not just using them properly. We need to teach you how to fight like a soldier. How to parry, how to strike. How to move your feet, how to hold your shield. And then we not only need to teach the individual soldiers how to fight and how to wear their armor and what to do with it, but we need to teach the other soldiers around them what to do. This is how we march. This is how we raise our shields and go together. And if the whole army is working properly, then it's good. But if the whole army is just kind of doing its own thing, some people are wearing helmets, some people don't have shields, some guys are just laying down on the ground, you're not going to do anything. So as we discuss equipping the church, it is both an individual equipping and a corporate equipping. There are things we need to teach individuals to do. We need to have individual preparation and we also need to have corporate preparation. How does the whole army work together? And as we do both, we will get functional and efficient. An army that kicks butt and takes names. Now, what are we to equip you to do? As an individual, what are you to be equipped to do as a Christian? Now, as I start this, let me be very clear. This is what we want to do as a church. This isn't just some set of ideals I'm going to throw out there. Oh, we should do this, we should do this. Everything I talk about today, I have plan on teaching you how to do. It'll be planned out for small groups, classes, etc. Maybe even a conference or two. This will take time, and it'll take honestly years to go through all this stuff, and then to keep going through it. So as we bring in new Christians, we're like, hey, do you know how to do this? Well, you need to make sure you know. But it's something we have to do if we're going to be the Christians that God wants us to be. What are you to do as a Christian? Honestly, I think Jesus explains very clearly in Luke chapter 6, verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. This is what Jesus said. This isn't just something I made up. Jesus says, when every, everyone, when he is fully trained, when he is fully equipped and prepared, he will be like his teacher. It's that second part that's the key. Now, this isn't just in terms of holiness or kindness or loving people. Yes, we expect you to be holy and kind and loving and forgiving and all that good stuff. We need to be kind and loving like Jesus. You can't, you know, know how to cast out a demon and be a jerk to people and how to bring healing to somebody, but to, ah, I don't really care about people. We should be kind and loving and all that good stuff, but it also includes doing the kind of stuff that Jesus did during his ministry. If you look at what Jesus does, this is what he expects us to do. Healing, raising the dead, casting out demons, all that stuff his disciples were to do too. And if you look in the book of Acts, you see them doing it. 
If you look in Luke 10, he commissions 84 people to do the work that Jesus did in the world. And in John 14, 12, one of my favorite Bible verses, Jesus says, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do because I'm going to the Father. So not only would he be doing Jesus' type of works, he'd be doing greater things. I can't, I know the Bible says this, but I can't wrap my head around it, guys. Jesus healed 10 lepers at once. Like, like it was no big deal. Like, here you go. Your major life-crippling disease is just gone. No biggie. And then raising Lazarus from the dead? Didn't even seem like he broke a sweat. That's pretty awesome. And then he says greater things than these? Is that like 30 lepers at once? <laughs> is this a mathematical thing? Maybe is it 10 lepers who are uh, the next state over? And then raising, like, do you want to raise like two dead people at once? Like there's a car, cra- car crash and we show up and there's just like four or five dead people and we're like... And then they all come back to life? Like, I, I can't wrap my head around this, guys. This, but this is what the Bible says. This is what Jesus expects of us. And the fact that Jesus thinks at some level we should be basically functioning at his capacity astounds me. But specifically, there are some things that we need to teach all individuals here to do. This is great. This is awesome. I want to see this in our church. But let's start with a little bit more practical stuff. Let's start off with the easy things. Pretty standard, but are important. Like sharing the gospel. If you met an unbeliever, you're talking with a non-Christian, and they're like, so what does it mean to be a Christian? How does somebody become a Christian? You should be able to say, you you believe that you're a sinner, you believe that God loves you, you believe Jesus is God in the flesh, and he died so that you could have a healed relationship with God by him dying in your place for all the sin that you did. And once you believe in him, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside you. He never leaves you, and you have a new life in God. You should be able to understand what it means to be saved and how to explain to someone else how to get saved. Because if you're a Christian, but you can't explain to somebody else how to be a Christian, that's not good. That's like being able to drive, but not being able to explain to somebody else how to drive. Well, then you're probably not driving correctly. If our own faith is unclear, how can we share it? If we don't know what we believe, how we are saved, how are we supposed to help others get saved? In addition to that, we should teach people how to pray. Jesus' followers asked him how to pray. Matthew 6. Lord, teach us how to pray. Do you know how to pray? I mean, when we pray, do we have to say thee and thou and thine? I've been in churches with guys who are like, why don't you pray saying thee and thou and thine? I'm like, because I don't live in the 1600s. <laughs> He's like, well, if you look in the King James Version, I'm like, all right, you need to back up. But if you look, when Jesus teaches, he teaches us about what we should be praying for. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us for what we've done wrong. Who should we be praying for? Pray for your enemies. All these kind of things are wrapped up in how to pray. Moving on. Apologetics. Can you explain to people why God exists? Or the arguments for why God exists? 
Because while it's nice to be like, man, I've met Jesus, he's awesome and I know him, a lot of people will say, well, what about dinosaurs? If God made everything, where did the dinosaurs come from? What about the Big Bang Theory? What about evolution? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And you need to be able to sit there and say, those things aren't incompatible with Christianity. But you need to be able to explain why they're not incompatible with Christianity. And you can't just say, well, talk to my pastor. He knows. I can do that. But it's much more effective if you can do that. Or, barring that, here's a YouTube video on explaining why this isn't. It works. Can you explain why the, why the Bible is trustworthy? Why the Bible is, from the ancient world, the Bible has the most copies of it made of any ancient document we have. There are over 3,000 copies of the Bible from ancient times dating within eh, 150 years. There is no reason why you shouldn't believe the Bible is trustworthy and the text that we have is as close as possible with 99.999% accuracy to the original. When we have copies of the Iliad that are hundreds of years later and we're like, eh, it's probably good enough. Can you explain the reasons why Jesus, which why it's historical scholars believe that Jesus was a real person? Because the atheists are just like, oh yeah, nobody believes Jesus ever existed. Scholars who don't believe in Jesus say, we have firm belief that we can be confident that Jesus was a real person. He really did die on the cross and his followers really did believe that he rose from the grave. People who don't like Jesus and who don't believe in him will give, give you those three facts. So just because you're an angsty, you know, 17-year-old who's mad at his parents for making him go to church doesn't mean you can't just say, well, nobody believes in God and Jesus never really... Shut up. <laughs> Our faith may be faith, but it's propped up with solid, logical reasons. Sorry, I get hung up on this one because I spent so many years in college arguing and getting my butt handed to me by former Christians who hated God. They didn't believe he exists and were mad at him. So I had to read a lot. Yeah, that'll throw you. God's not real and I hate him. Let me back up a little bit. Biblical exegesis, which is a fancy word for can you explain what the Bible says? If somebody says, the Lord is my shepherd, what does that mean? Can you explain to somebody when the, what the Bible means? Can they open up to a passage and say, help, help me understand this? And like the basic ones. I'm not asking you to explain in 1 Corinthians why they baptize for the dead. Hold on on that one. But if they're easier passages, can you explain it? If somebody pulls a verse out of context, can you explain it to them? Do you know the Bible says there's no God? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. But if you just take those few words, technically speaking, the Bible could say that. Can you point out when somebody says, the Bible says there is no God? Read the psalm, dude. Read the whole thing. (laughs) We have to be able to tell when people are misusing the Bible. Because people throw out verses. Unbelievers will throw out, the Bible says this. Is that what it says? Can you explain? Look at the whole chapter. Look at the argument the person's making. Do you know the whole story of the Bible and how the little sections called books that we have fit into it? Let's move on. Fasting. Whoa, whoa, whoa there. Going too fast. Going too fast in fasting. Fasting. Have you ever fasted? 
Why do we fast? Is it optional? I've never fasted. Why do I have to start now? Are there spiritual benefits? What are the spiritual benefits to fasting? Does it have to be just food? I had a, I had an electronics fast in one of my churches for a week. And let me tell you, it was good. I had some real good sermons for a couple weeks afterwards because it was like God was just sitting there going, hey, guess what? You're finally listening. <laughs> it was awesome. You can fast from Facebook. You should probably just get away from it altogether, but you can fast from Facebook. Your identity in Christ. Has your salvation changed who you are at the core? Has the fact that you are now in the church as part of God's family changed your identity? Has it changed how you think? How has it changed how you approach problems? Jesus didn't die so we could just go to heaven. He wants to change us entirely. Has your image of yourself changed based on what Christ has done? And if it hasn't, how do you expect him to change others? What, is there, what hope is there for an alcoholic if at the very core of his being he can't be transformed by Jesus? And that's just one example of however many you want to throw out there. I meet a lot of people who when I ask them, every single person here, back up, every single person here at the very core of your being has an identity. And you can answer that question by saying, who are you? Wayne, who are you? Donna, who are you? Your response is, I am a blank. Guys will typically say their job. I'm a plumber. I'm a pastor. I'm a printer. Women will say, I'm a mom. Or I'm a wife. Or I'm whatever. Typically. But when I ask you, who are you? You first and foremost should say, I am a child of God, a creation of God. I'm part of God's family. I'm blessed, favored, and highly whatever thing that people say is. It should, our core identity, I'm going to sneeze here, come on. Our core identity, the core, the, at the very center of our being should be our identity in Christ. It should trump everything else. Literally everything else should be secondary to who you are in Jesus. And anything else that gets in there in front of that is an idol. If, you are a, if I'm a dad before I'm a Christian, being dad's an idol. If I'm a husband before I'm a Christian. If I'm a pastor before being a Christian. Which seems weird. That's an idol. Everything it gets in the way of your identity in Christ is an idol and needs to be put in its place. So to speak. Let's keep going. Spiritual gifts. Do you know what they are? Do you know how they work? Do you know where to use them? How would you use them? Can you help someone else uncover their spiritual gifts? Part of the core of your equipping as a Christian is to say, what gifts do you have? What part of the body are you supposed to function in? I talk about this one a lot. I love this one. I'll come back to it. Hearing God. Could you, if I put you on the spot, could you hear from God? Can God get a message through to you if you need to hear it? I'm a firm believer that every single person here should be able to hear God Maybe not 24-7, but at least every day. Should be able to hear from God. You should be able to sit there and say, God, what do you want to say to me? And hear him talk. 
God is talking. Do you hear God regularly? Does your idea of God allow him to talk? I know a lot of people who say, well, God's not, God doesn't need to talk to us anymore because he gave us the Bible. I'm like, that's nice and true that he did give us the Bible, but in the Bible it says that God still talks to you. So, Do you know how to exercise spiritual discernment? Can you tell when the Holy Spirit's warning you not to do something? Can you get his little red flags that he's like, stop, don't do that. (laughs) Are you in tune with his directional leading? Or about people? Or about movies and songs? You ever watch this TV show or watch the movie and be like, nah, I shouldn't be watching this. I love Game of Thrones. But about halfway through season three, my discernment went off and I went, I can't watch this anymore. Some people I know watch it, no problem. But the nudity and the gore, I just was like, nope. Can't do this. Are you able to pray for people for healing? Or I guess I should say how to heal. Do you know how to approach this? If someone was injured, what's the first thing you do? Call 911 and then no, hold your hand, it'll be okay. Or would you start praying for them? Is healing even on your radar or is it just for pastors? I love praying for people for healing. I have a very low success rate for that. But let me tell you, there are people here, if the Bible is true, there are people here who are gifted to pray for people for healing for specific areas and they will see results. Moving on, how to cast out demons. Can you identify demonic activity? Do you know you have the authority to cast demons out? Like Jesus literally gives you that authority. Would you dare... Or do you think casting out demons should look like The Exorcist? I actually had never seen the movie. And then I read the Wikipedia summary. And I was like, that is so messed up. (laughs) No, you don't. Yeah, that's how they get you. (laughs) I don't say a lot of things are (laughs) satanically inspired, but that's a misdirection. That's a yes, there is real demonic activity. And yes, they do stuff like that girl or kid or boy or whatever it was in the movie would do. But the solution is not what the solution was in the movie. It's tell them to leave in Jesus' name because Jesus gives you more authority. Like, get out of here. No. We can do it. I've seen Christians do it. It's awesome. But if you don't know how, you're going to get your butt handed to you. Like the seven sons of Siva in the book of Acts. Oh, yeah, yeah, you got to leave because Jesus or something. Demons are like, What? Good story. One of those not often preached about ones. All of these things and more are part of what we should be equipped to do. And if you hear all of this, if you look at that list and say, that sounds like a lot. Like, you know I have to sleep, right? I have got work to do. This sounds like it's going to take over my life. Let me just say, yes, it should. Matthew 16 Verses 24 and 25. Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Basically, God is saying, I expect you, as a Christian, for this to take over your whole life. It should. Your faith should take over literally every aspect of your life. If God tells you to quit your job, guess what? If God tells you, you need to move over here, 
moved to this different state, guess what? He's in charge. God literally expects him to have free reign over every single aspect of your life. And that is terrifying and that is scary because we like control. We like to make our own decisions. I live in America, Jesus. I can do whatever I want. And God's like, I made that country. (laughs) I shaped that land with my hands. (laughs) This land is my land. (laughs) Jesus wants to take over your life so that everything is transformed by him. And that is what he expects of his followers, to be like their teacher, to literally be 100% devoted, sold out, everything is his, whatever you want, God, you got. And that's why I got in their church, into church work. It's because I believe 100% of what Jesus says. This book and the model that Jesus sets up for me, I am so committed to. I want to see everybody radically transformed by their faith so that it touches every single part of their life and they are going into work and praying for people and saying, God, how do you want me to work among these people? Is there anybody I need to pray for? Is there anything that's going on here that I need to deal with? Like, just so outside the box. When they're walking their dog, God, what's going on here? This is what I want for me, for my family, for my church. And I'm promising you, I will give 100% to you guys to make sure you end up as close or as similar to Jesus as you could possibly get. I'm sold out for you guys. Because I want to see awesome stuff happen from this church. Now, let's take, let's chill out a little bit and move on. Now, with each individual being equipped, Ephesians 4, uh, to serve properly in the army, there is also some corporate equipping that needs to be done. Remember, equip means to bring into a condition of fitness and proper function. And the army only works when the soldiers work in unison. Otherwise, people get left behind or shot in the back unintentionally. Uh, So we as a church need to function as a unit. Every person playing their part. And the picture that the Bible paints is a body. This is 1 Corinthians 12. Paul paints the picture of a body with your spiritual gifts. It's an organism. There are a variety of gifts, but the same spirit. A variety of services, but the same Lord. A variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone, and to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And this is actually on the leadership. To structure the church in such a way that your gifts, and your gifts, and literally everyone's here, gifts, get a place to serve. Where do the pastors go to serve? People with pastoral gifts, with caring gifts, that want to reach out and invest in people's lives. Where do they go to serve? What about people who want to do just service acts? You know, I really feel like I want to help this church service run well. How can I help with setting up chairs or with uh, making sure the tables are in the right places? Or Where do those people go? Or the people with teaching gifts? I'm not the only person here with a teaching gift. Where do the other teachers go to serve? Or the prophets or the evangelists or the healers? How do all of these things work together? The church should be set up in a way that each person can say, I know where I'm supposed to serve. And the church also should be set up in a way to help people uncover their gifts. And then serve with them, whether that's Sunday morning, Wednesday night, Saturday night. I don't know. God didn't just give us our gifts for funsies. He wasn't just like, here's some gifts. They're pretty cool. Do whatever you want with them. He gave them to us to grow the church, to grow people, to invest in people in this organization. 
He wants us to use them. And I would say he expects us to use them so that we can all grow. You have gifts that I need to help me grow. Tom has gifts that you need to help him grow. And so does Patty has gifts that you need. You have gifts that will help Patty grow. And Patty needs you to use them. Right, Patty? Patty's like, don't put me on this spot. <laughs> so we need to structure our church in a way that all gifts can be utilized. And of all the times to restructure a church for that change, I think we're in an optimal position. We're small so that we can change things, but we're not so small that we have like 10 people. <laughs> We have a good place to start from in order to bring about the changes that we need. So to conclude, to wrap up, equipping is part of the central work of the church because we are called to seek the unreached, cast a wide net. We want to invite people into God's family. Do whatever it takes to reach out to Christians, to non-Christians so that they can hear about Jesus. But we don't just bring them in and say, well, go to church and read your Bible. Because going to church by itself isn't enough to mature as a Christian. It's good. It is a good thing to come to church. But there is so much more to the Christian life. We are, to, we are biblically required to equip people once they become believers. So that's why we have step two in there. It is literally what we're supposed to be doing. To teach you how to do the things that Jesus did. If we are as disciples, we should become like the master. We are to be little Jesuses here in the world. And that requires some work. Some actually some significant work. Because nobody's born knowing how to be like Jesus. You gotta learn it. But if we are to be a church that functions as God attend, intends, it is mandatory. Because God has people he wants us to heal. To free from the op- oppression of the enemy. To share the gospel with. To teach the Bible with. But we won't ac- accomplish these things if we aren't equipped to do them. Which brings me back to the final point that I want to remind everyone. We are in a war. Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers. The war started before we even entered into the picture. Before God even made the earth, there was a war going on. God versus the powers of darkness and rebellion against him. And we are simply one theater of the larger war throughout creation. And in the battlefield of the earth... God is in the process of recruiting an army. He's calling out for people to join his side and to fight alongside of him. Because God could win it all by himself. This is the thing that blows my mind. Is God could just... Everything's done. Win it all by himself. But he wants to recruit us so that we can fight with him. He wants us to join in his battle in this world and he wants us to use his weapons to fight and win on his behalf. The fact that we get to kick the enemy's butt because God's behind us and supporting us? God's like, here are the weapons, just use them. That's awesome. That's so cool. That's supernatural powers that have been in existence for billions, millions, inconceivably long amounts of time before I came into existence. God's like, hey, guess what? You've been alive for 30 years. Here's some weapons to beat the enemy. I've been alive for 30 years. He's been alive for... Don't worry, they work. Okay. Just use them. So are you prepared to serve in the army? Do you have your gear in order? Are your weapons ready? Do you know your place in the army? Are you recon? Are you a staff sergeant? Are you a general? Are you in the artillery or in the infantry? Are you ready to fight as part of God's army? 
because the enemy is ready. Because just because we're ready, if we're just because we're not ready, doesn't mean he's going to go, oh, I'll just sit here and wait. Satan and his forces are not nice people. <laughs> they are bad. They are evil. They don't fight fair. He attacks babies and he attacks children. He attacks the old and the weak and the unprepared. He doesn't care. So we got to be 100% ready to fight. And ignoring him won't exclude you from the fight. Some Christians just think, oh, I'm just going to tune out the end. Oh, no, I don't believe that exists anymore. And God's going, come on. <laughs> but God's weapons are the best. And if we use them, we will win. Literally the only way you can lose is just to choose not to fight. Isaiah fifty four seventeen. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. That's in the book. Jesus is like, you can't beat me. You just got to fight. God will win, but his people may lose if they are ill-equipped and unprepared. And we don't want that here. I don't want that for anyone here. I want you to experience victory in Christ in every single aspect of your life. So I will do all I can to help everyone here. And truthfully, this step here on Equipping Believers, that's where my heart is. That's where I feel like that's, that's the position I should be playing. That's the part of the body I need to be. It's part of what God has called me to do with my life. So I'm thrilled to help you and to introduce you to all these cool weapons you have. It's really awesome. It's kind of fun. There's some cool things you can do. And you're in God's army, so I need to teach you how to do them. And I'm really excited to do it. You guys are like, okay, I'm ready. Let's do something. Hold on. I'm just letting you know, next year, I'll be putting on some classes for this specific type of stuff. And I expect everybody to be there. Even if the Cowboys are playing, I still expect you to be there. Even if the Steelers are playing, I expect you to be there. Tom's like, okay, no problem with the Cowboys. Don't you record them anyway and watch later? Okay. Let's pray before this gets any more off topic. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are 100% invested in us. That Jesus, you love us so much that you give us creations of basically the dirt out of the ground. You give us power. You give us authority. You give us mighty weapons. And you tell us to go fight and win. Lord, I pray for our church. I ask that you would help us to be a church that equips people to do the things that you need us to do. That equips people to be like you, Jesus. Because you did some awesome stuff and you haven't stopped. So help us to join in that awesome stuff. We love you. Holy Spirit, we invite your presence to just continue to minister to us. Thank you for all the good things you're doing. We bless you. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.